1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12, looking at verses 25 through 33. I've titled the sermon, The Fallen Heart, the Birthplace of All Idolatry, the Human Heart, the Fallen Human Heart, the Birthplace of All Idolatry. Last week, we began this new series in 1 Kings, setting the historical context in stage for the ministries, respectively, of Elijah and Elisha, whom we'll look at in the coming weeks, beginning in chapters 17 and following. That happened roughly in about the 9th century B.C. We're setting the context because we want to understand the answer to this question. How did Israel, how did Israel, the northern kingdom particularly, fall from the heights of Solomon's dynasty and all of its splendor and all of its glory to the despair of apostasy, right? How, how can a church fall so quickly, right? How can a family fall so quickly? How could an individual fall so quickly who was walking or were walking triumphantly in our Lord Jesus Christ. All of that happened, believe it or not, within a generation. We looked at chapter 12 last week and we were told that King Solomon gave his heart the command center, right? It includes not only the emotions, but the mind as well. It's, in, it's inclusive. It's holistic. He gave his heart to many foreign women who turned his heart from following the Lord his God. And went after many foreign gods. We paused there and we said we need to take heed. If Solomon can fall, then anyone can fall. Right? Save the grace of God. He who began the good work in us is faithful to complete it. And I do believe he completed it in Solomon, but not without much heartache along the way. We saw that what Solomon did in the sight of the Lord as a result of Turning his heart and giving it to false gods was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result, the kingdom would be taken away from Solomon, yet God promised to do it not in the days of Solomon, but it will be torn out of the hand of your son. And that son, as we'll see, is named Rehoboam. So here in chapter 12, right, 10 years later from where Solomon First committed is ruling the two southern tribes. And Jeroboam, now I know that's difficult, right? Rehoboam's in the north, R, north. <laughs> right? No, did I get it wrong? See, look at that. <laughs> Jeroboam's in the north, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon's in the south ministering the two tribes, right? So Jeroboam is ruling in the northern ten tribes and Rehoboam is in ruling in the two southern tribes, right? And we said this last week. We said that as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. See, it's a very covenantal concept, right? God works through covenant. He deals with us in covenant. Just like in households, as the father and mom go, typically... The house goes that way. It works that way more often than not. We said as well, Romans 15, 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. 
So in Jeroboam, governing, ruling over those ten northern tribes, we see the fallen human heart of man and all of its depravity left to itself is an idle factory. Nowhere is that better seen than the heart of Jeroboam. So let's read 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning at verse 25 through verse 33. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord Yahweh at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord or master to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king, that is Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your God, so Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places, and he appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam made or appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he, Jeroboam, did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month and the month that he had made, literally in the Hebrew, or devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people and went up to the altar to make offerings. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us ears to heed your word, to be doers of your word, that we would not be like those duplicitous, double-minded, double-hearted people, men, women that we read about in James who look into your holy law and soon forget what they see. So Lord, give us gospel obedience. Give us fidelity to your holy law, to your Torah, to your instruction. May it be our delight morning, noon, and night. Oh, Father, may we delight in it. It is sweet, sweeter than the honey. May we learn from the, the, the scandalous, evil ways of Jeroboam and take heed lest we fall. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few years ago in uh, Bloomberg Business Magazine, they ran a cover story about one of the biggest American businesses that exists, and that's the evangelical church, believe it or not, right, as far as just from a, a monetary standpoint, the money that's generated in the evangelical church. 
A Christian theologian scholar by the name of Samuel Storms wrote a response while not having a problem with the church being more efficient, right, being more uh, organized per se. Samuel Storms, the professor, did say that he was gravely concerned with the soul-shrieking gospel in the church today. He says, the word of God has disappeared in the evangelical church. We no longer hear the faithful exposition of the word, but a humanistic message of human potential and personal fulfillment. He says, the message of your best life now only distracts people from what makes the biblical gospel good news. And what is that? The majestic, mind-blowing beauty of a transcendently holy God who graciously condescends in the person of his Son to absorb in himself the punishment and wrath that we so all richly, eternally deserve. He's a Jonathan Edwards scholar. You hear that and you go, yeah, (laughs) I hear Edwards there. You see, beloved, neglecting and questioning The word of God to do our own thing is as old as Genesis 3. And there are few places in the word of God where this folly, this great evil, to trust and to lean on our own understanding, to not acknowledge God in all our ways, no place better do we learn the folly of this evil than in the life of Jeroboam. Proverbs 28, 26, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Now that challenges the orthodoxy of today in the popular world, popular culture, doesn't it? Trust your heart. Look within. That's exactly what Jeroboam did. That's what Solomon did. That's what Oprah will tell you to do. Talk radio will tell you to do. The, Car- uh, the Kardashians, they'll tell you to do it, right? All of our popular culture's music, look within. Find fulfillment within. Worship God any way you imagine God to be. Construct God in your own image. You'll find fulfillment in yourself. My truth, right? All of this has an origin from the pit of hell. Jeroboam is the poster child for this. To not worship God according to his holy word. God regulates worship. Not Jeroboam. Not your heart. Not my heart. Not the session's heart. God's word regulates worship. So let's look at this text by examining Jeroboam's self-made religion. It's a self-made religion. It's manufactured out of the evil of his own heart. Let's look at the new city that he concocts, the new gods that he makes, and the new ordinances. You know, he's full on. He's full on in rebellion against God. So first, Jeroboam's new city. Now we know Jeroboam was king of the ten northern tribes, Right, just as had been foretold in chapter 11 through the prophet Ahijah. And God mercifully spared the divided kingdoms in the north and the south so there wouldn't be civil war. We're told in 25, verse 25, in an effort to fortify his kingdom in the north, there's nothing wrong with that per se, right? He, 
He's come to the throne. It's all according to God's will. God said, I'm going to bless you if you follow me. I'm going to make your house, Jeroboam, like the house of David if you follow and walk in my law. So he seeks to fortify the city there in Shechem and Penel. And he built Shechem. Shechem was 35 miles north of Jerusalem in the hill country. And he lived there. He also built Peninuel, right, on the eastern side of the Jordan, right? Shechem would function as the capital of the northern kingdom. You see, Jeroboam's desire right after assuming the throne, though, was to replace, now listen, Jeroboam's desire was to replace Jerusalem, the city of God, with Shechem. Whose idea was that? It was Jeroboam's. God had sanctioned Jerusalem to be the city of God, where God would propitiate and pay and show forth in types and shadows the lamb that would come to make atonement for sins. But now Jeroboam is now making Shechem. You see, historically, God's people had always gone up to Jerusalem. That was the city of God. That's where forgiveness was found. You see, Jeroboam was an astute political operator. He's a fearful man. He's worried that if the people worship in Jerusalem as God required, it would weaken his political hold over the people. He's now using religion, a politician using religion. Imagine that. That's what he's doing. To serve his own selfish, narcissistic ambition. Quoting scripture. You see, beloved, he knew that if he wanted to capture the hearts of the people, he had to control where the people worshipped. I've got to head off this migration to the south. (laughs) They can't go south. Earlier in chapter 11, 37, Ahijah, as I mentioned, prophesied that Jeroboam, that he would reign over the ten Norman tribes. But rather than live by faith in the promise of God, he chose to live in fear. Because he was more concerned with the kingdom of self than the kingdom of God. Verse 26, notice what 26 says. And Jeroboam said in his, what? What's it say? Heart. Just like last week. Just like last week with Solomon. What's coming out of your heart? Nothing good. He said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people, that is the ten northern tribes, go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will be turned again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will... They will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. You see, God had promised Jeroboam that he would rule. But rather than live by faith, Jeroboam chose to live by fear. Rather than to submit to the word of God, he lived in insecurity. And he sought to do whatever was necessary and politically expedient to protect his own interest. Even if it meant dividing the people, not only geographically, but also spiritually. You see, Jeroboam wanted Shechem to replace Jerusalem, lest the people return to the son of Jesse, the son of David, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Now listen, it's never a good idea to cut yourself off from the son of Jesse. Now let that sit there. 
when you cut yourself off from the house of the Lord, where God has promised to meet with his people, to make atonement for place that someone else tells you, you're in grave danger. That's exactly what Jeroboam was doing. You see, Jeroboam had the promise of God, but the promise was not enough. He needed more security than the word of God. The naked word, the naked promise, that's not enough. I need more. I need a sign. So that's why he built Shechem, and he introduced idolatrous worship to protect his own interest. You see, he lived by fear instead of faith. Now, before we, you know, pile up all of our stones, as Reformed folk, we need to pause. Has the temptation to fear, to live by fear rather than by faith ever been your temptation? Have you ever been in that place where the promise of God is not enough? You need more. Yeah, I like the promise. It's good. But I need something more. It's too simple. Right? The temptation to fear rather than faith is one that affects us all. Not even the greatest saints in the Bible were immune from it. Remember Abraham? Genesis 16, God had cut the covenant beautifully illustrated literally for him there in chapter 15 with the animals and the fiery furnace that goes through it. Abraham's asleep. Let it be unto me, says the Lord, as it is unto these animals if I don't fulfill my word. Yahweh himself preached that word, showed Abraham that word. And we get to chapter 16, what is Abraham doing? The word's not enough. The promise is not enough. I'm going to help God out. Me and Sarah are going to help God out. We're going to take Hagar and get that promised seed that God promised. You see what he did? He went back to the flesh. When the word is not enough, you default to the flesh. Right? That's exactly what Abraham did began to rely on his own machinations, his own creativity, right? Innovations, that's what we call this, right? This is innovative. (laughs) This is progressive, right? It's avant-garde, right? Oh, beloved, the word of God is clear. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, a fool. The church that trusts in its own wisdom are fools. A nation that trusts in its own wisdom are fools. You see, saints, God has promised to justify the ungodly simply through faith in Jesus Christ. But oh, how often we want to fall back into thinking there's something more. It can't be that easy. To do some penance, some work before God will be pleased with me. Yet the word says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works that no man can boast. Rather than resting in the, the naked word, the powerful word of God, we say, well, I've got I to do something more. 
so God will be pleased with me. I, I need something more than Jesus' blood and atoning sacrifice. I, I need more than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, we will take God at his word or we will keep wavering in unbelief, doubting like Jeroboam. Secondly, not only the new city, look at the new gods that Jeroboam constructs. Notice where Jeroboam's problem begins. When he stopped believing the promise and consulted his own heart. Again, verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart. He's trusting in his heart. And that was the beginning of the end, not only for Jeroboam. That was the beginning of the end of the northern kingdom. Now remember, I'm trying to set the context for the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. How did it go from the pinnacle and the heights of glory in Solomon's day to the apostasy in the days of Elijah and Elisha? All within one generation because of idolatry, because of the innovations of the fallen human heart. Remember now, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom, you see. It was the beginning of the end of the northern kingdom. Jeroboam sounds like a nurse from Robert Bela, uh, the sociologist's book. He wrote the book, Habits of the Heart. He tells about this young woman who lives in Manhattan, New York. Her name is Sheila. And uh, he was interviewing her because he's a you know, sociologist and he's taking all this data in. He wants to see what people believe and why they believe it. And he asked Sheila to describe her religion. This is what she said. I believe in God. I'm not religious. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism. Just my own little voice. That's a daughter of Jeroboam. It's everywhere in the culture today. Follow your own inner voice. Follow your own heart. Disney cartoons are full of follow your own heart. <laughs> From the smallest to the, 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 the most aged. Follow your heart. Beloved, the trouble with consulting your own heart is it's deceitful above all things. It's a perpetual idol factory, as Calvin would say. When we consult our own hearts rather than the word of God, we end up where Jeroboam did. We end up in idolatry. Doubt your heart. <laughs> G.K. Chesterton said this, and it's profound. He says, when people cease to believe in God, they do not worship nothing. They end up worshiping everything and anything. Has there ever been a more apropos text than the one before us today in our cultural moment? This is where we are. They believe everything and anything. Look at verse 28. So the king, that is Jeroboam, took counsel. Same word that Rehoboam took counsel with his young friends there in chapter 11. Made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people. They went as far as Dan to be before one. That sound familiar? 
Does those, those words resonate with you? If you know your Bible very well, if you know the book of Exodus, they're almost identical to the words in Exodus 32, right? Israel's waiting for Moses to return from the mountain of God. What are they doing? They're down there in the valley, and he's been carrying, longing, coming. What do they start to do? They begin to start. Look what? Where do they begin to look? They begin to look within. Collectively, they begin to talk among themselves. What's on your heart? Well, what's on your heart, Jenny? What's on your heart, Bob? They begin to consult together and devise. They call Aaron. They asked Aaron, verse 1 of chapter 32, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, this lucky-come-lately guy, we don't know what has happened to him. So Aaron instructs the people, bring me the gold. What does Aaron do? He fabricates what? A golden calf. And he tells them, this is the exact words in Exodus 32, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see what's happening? History's repeating itself. The very same language here in 1 Kings that we have there in Exodus. You see, Jeroboam had already taken the ten northern tribes away from the house of David. Now he's taking them from the worship of the living God into idolatry. And later he's told through the prophet, you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods, mental images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back, Jeroboam, son of Nabat. All because he consulted his own heart. He followed his dreams, his ambitions. And notice the strategy of Jeroboam's plan. He sets up a golden calf in the south there at Bethel, right? Bethel's about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And he sets up one in Dan in the north. He creates these two worship centers out of his own imagination. You can imagine Jeroboam's selling point. Well, you know, why go to Jerusalem? We've got a nice little temple right here, right here in Bethel, right? The house of God, right? A rich tradition of religious experience with God. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. Yeah, I know that Moses says you need to go to Jerusalem. The Torah commands you must worship God in God's city and God's place. But, you know, I, I think this is better if you go to Bethel or go to Dan, Right, you're closer to home. Think about all the time and money you'll save, right? You don't have to go to that church. <laughs> right, think of this church here. You can stop here and worship here because they've devised the religion of their own making. Historian Edward Gibbon, speaking about the last days of Rome before it fell, said this. Now listen to this. This is his description of Rome before it fell. I know Mr. Yancey's heard this. All religions were regarded by the people as equally true. By the philosophers as equally false. And by the politicians as equally useful. Oh my. Wow. It's scary. This is exactly what we see Jeroboam doing. 
He used religion as a means of gaining and maintaining his political control over the people for his own self-interest. You see, unfortunately, though, again, before we gather our stones, let's stop and pause. Politicians are not the only ones who use religion to get what they want. You see, Ralph Davis is correct. If you cannot trust God, if you cannot believe the naked promise of God and obey his law as it's written, as he's breathed it out through his prophets, you will use religion. How many people today are using religion to appease their own conscience and to make them feel better, to commend them to God? Somehow meriting something apart from Jesus Christ before the living God. How about others who who use these charlatans all over the, the TV screen, these name it, claim it, false prophets, the Joel Olsteins of the world who use religion as a means to financial gain. Woe unto you when you use religion for personal gain. So the new city, the new gods, thirdly, the the new ordinances. Notice that Jeroboam did not stop with his new gods, the golden calves. You see, his idolatrous heart knows no boundaries. He, He invents, now listen, he invents his own liturgical system. He's got it hook, line, and sing. He's done the whole nine. Notice the word made. It's used eight times in the Hebrew in this text. The writer wants us to see that this whole concoction, this whole false religious system that Jeroboam devised was of his own making. Listen to the text. Verse 31, he, Jeroboam, also made temples on high places and appointed, the word there is made, made priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed or made a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he, Jeroboam, had made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. Verse 33, he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted or made a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings that he had made. Again, the operative word in the text is made. The idol factory of Jeroboam's heart was up and running. There was no law that he did not violate. He made temples. He appointed his own priest. He ordained tribes from the tribes other than Levi. He invented his own liturgical calendar. This was in the visible church. This is not the world. This is the visible church that we're speaking of in the Old Covenant. He started his own feast. 
He even claimed the prerogatives of priesthood for himself. Jeroboam, like Sinatra, he did it his own way. He's a lot like Sheila in Sheilaism or Dennisism or Rickism, fabricating gods according to their own image. You see, Jeroboam forsook the regular principle. You see, we talk about it a lot here in Presbyterian circles. We can only worship God in the way that God has prescribed. God doesn't call us to be creative. He calls us to be faithful, to be diligent, to worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, worship for Jeroboam was not a divine gift, but a human invention. Worship was not something God regulated through his word, but something left to his own wicked imagination. And once Jeroboam rejected the prescribed worship of God at the temple in Jerusalem, he cut himself off from the only place that Jeroboam could find forgiveness. And that was at the temple. He cut himself off so he could never be forgiven of his sins. And you see, beloved, once you reject the only place God is appointed to deal with your sins, there's no hope of forgiveness. Today there is one place, one place only, God has ordained in his holy word to deal with sin. It's not in a temple in Palestine. It's not in a particular system. It's found at the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, for the unbelieving world and those who are perishing, this is folly, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God into salvation. The unbelieving world says, look within for salvation to your own heart to do what Jeroboam did. And look where that got him. You see, he cut himself off and in so doing, cut Israel off from her God. You see what he did? As the king goes, so goes the kingdom. Apostasy is being introduced within one generation of the glory of Solomon. All because it's devised from the heart of the wicked Jeroboam, his wicked heart. And you think about Jeroboam's legacy, right? He takes not only himself, it's bad enough that his decision affected himself, but it affected all of those around him. And I thought to myself, that's profound. When we stop and we think about it in our own households, men, what are we doing in our homes? (laughs) What false gods are we introducing to our children? to our wives, to our friends. It doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. You see, that's the legacy that Jeroboam left, his own children. And from here on out, what you'll see and the refrain you'll hear over and over again as you read through First and Second Kings from this point forward is that every wicked king will be referenced back to Jeroboam, son of Nabat. He walked in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat. Because Jeroboam was an innovator. He was a progressive. He sought to worship God according to the devices and the imaginations of his own wicked heart. And it cost him everything. Everything. You see, his his choices had catastrophic consequences for himself and for the nation. 
So, beloved, look to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, hanging on that cross, buried and raised for the forgiveness of sinners. You see, that's where we are to worship, if we're to worship in spirit and in truth, and corporately to worship according to his word, his word alone. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this sobering text of Jeroboam and the folly and the foolishness and the wickedness of not worshiping you correctly, whether that be individually or in households or corporately as the church. You've called us to worship in spirit and in truth. So, Father, may we be faithful to that command. May we hold it dear to our hearts and may we be diligent to pursue it. Father, you would protect us. For, Lord, the folly and the foolishness and the wickedness of idolatry is only one generation away, even as it was in the days of Jeroboam, the days of Solomon. So, Lord, protect us, we pray. Oh, Father, go before us, watch over us, and keep us. We thank you that you have promised to do so. But, Lord, we know that you do so through means, through our diligence, as you work to will within us what is good and pleasing in your sight. So, Lord Jesus, we pray and ask for faithfulness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.